0: Nehemiah chapter 5. Now there was a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, we, our sons and our daughters are many, therefore let us get grain that we may eat and live. There were others who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards and our houses that we might get grain because of the famine. And there were also those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is like the flesh of our brothers, our children like their children. Yet behold, we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters are forced into bondage already, and we are helpless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. Then I heard, or I was very angry when I had heard their outcry and these words. I consulted, Nehemiah says, with myself, and contended with the nobles and the rulers, and said to them, You are exacting usury each from his brother. Therefore, I held a great assembly against them. Father, I I ask You to apply these words to us, and to help us, Lord, to see, to hear what You're saying to us. We recognize the historical context of what was going on, but we understand, Father, Your Word is living and active And therefore, there is an immediate context as well. And I pray this morning, Lord, You would speak those words, that immediacy into our hearts. And convict us, Father, where we need convicting. And draw us forward, Father, into deeper love, compassion, and care one for another. We thank You for Your Word this morning, Father. And we pray our ears will be open to it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I was saying, these were times of distress. Daniel 9.25, a verse that I return to often and have during our study of Ezra and Nehemiah, tells us Jerusalem will be built again with plaza and moat even in times of distress. The Hebrew word suk, meaning distress, pressure, or oppression. And these were days that fit that description perfectly. Though Daniel prophesied it nearly a century before these things came to pass, in Jerusalem with the rebuilding both of the temple and then the wall around it, these were days of severe distress on the people of God. Israel was was back in the land, granted, but not like before remember when Israel came into the land the first time they came in victoriously marching under the leadership of Joshua having followed Moses through the wilderness protected and cared for by God and they came in and with the exception of a few faithless moments they waylaid the peoples around them they were a mighty force to be reckoned with they came into the land and they dominated this was their land they weren't secured on every side in Nehemiah's day as they were under the reign of David David, that warrior king and shepherd king who secured the people and secured the borders so that by the time Solomon came along, oh, it was a mighty kingdom, a powerful place, something that a, a person could be proud of, a nation in which someone could say, yes, yes, this is the nation of my birth. But now the Jewish people had returned to the land broken and poor Divided, some still living in Persia and areas of Babylon. Some scattered off into other parts of the world. They were an oppressed people. Oppressed by foreign nations and would be until their final demise and destruction in A.D. 70. All the way to and through the time of Christ. One nation after another would dominate little Israel. Then it would not return to the status that it once held. They were no longer a free people. They were a distressed people. And when Nehemiah comes back to build the wall and stir up confidence in God's people Israel, that's when the real distress sets in. It's already a depressing place to be, but as they try to do something, the pressure comes on. The oppression becomes heavy. Alistair Begg put it this way. He said, when God's people do God's work in God's way, they will encounter opposition. It will come from expected sources, and it will come from unexpected sources. The expected opposition we talked about Wednesday night. From the outside, assaults and attacks against the body of faith. you think Satan would learn, because those attacks simply serve to make us stronger. When Satan goes after us, it's pretty easy to see his attacks originating from him. As we see the moment Nehemiah and company start building there in Nehemiah chapter 4. Let me just read you an excerpt of this. Chapter 4, verse 1. When it came about that Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became furious and very angry and mocked the Jews. He spoke in the presence of his brothers and the wealthy men of Samaria and said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Are they going to restore it for themselves? Can they offer sacrifices? Can they finish in a day? Can they revive the stones from the dusty rubble? Even the burned ones? Down in verse 7 of chapter 4, it says, Sambalat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites, kind of a United Nations, they heard that the repair of the walls in Jerusalem went on, and that the breaches began to be closed. They were very angry. Verse 8, all of them conspired together to come and fight against Jerusalem, and to cause a disturbance in it. Down in verse 11, Our enemy said they will not know or see until we come among them, kill them, and put a stop to the work. My friends, as we've talked about, the work of the Holy Spirit ignites opposition. When the devil begins to see God's people doing God's work in God's way, he becomes unhinged. That is typically his initial response. As it was with the first century church. Again, during the first 282 years of the church, he attacked brutally. He went after the church. He worked hard to take out the church. Rome saw to the martyrdom of millions of Christians. In fact, it's estimated possibly as many as 3 million believers in Jesus were martyred in the first 60 to 70 years alone. Philippians 1.29 says, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. This has been granted to you. Talked about the gift during communion this morning? Well, there's another gift that comes with it. The gift of suffering. You've been offered this great opportunity. Paul says in Philippians 3.7, Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Why, Paul? That I may know Him, and the power of His resurrection, and the fellowship of His sufferings, Being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. You see, when Satan attacks from the outside, there's great glory in it. It's a good thing. Suffering for the cause of Christ. Yes. (laughs) Standing against the adversary. All right. Swinging the sword of the Spirit in the noble fight of the faith. Man, I am all in for that. But it's not the threats from the outside that are so discouraging. It's the threats from the inside. It's not when Satan comes blasting at you. It's when he draws back, reconsiders, and finds another way to try and stop the work of God. It's distress from within. And that kind of distress is simply heartbreaking. It's one thing to challenge the heart of somebody and they get their back up. It's another thing to break their heart. Paul said in Acts chapter 20 verse 29, "I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in and will come in among you, not sparing the flock. That is, threats from the outside. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after them, that's threats from the inside. And those are the ones I'm concerned with this morning. When God's people become disgruntled, When we become disagreeable, disunited, and when the root of bitterness springs up from the seeds of discord, the work of God gets sorely sidetracked, if not completely undermined. The strength to stand against the enemy begins to deteriorate, and we crumble from within. That's the problem in Nehemiah chapter 5. Sandwiched between the external attacks of Sanballat, that, that thorny, satanic figure, and his gang of goons, chapter 4 and chapter 6, in chapter 5, internal conflict surfaces among the people, threatening to divide and distress the people, to break their hearts, and to cause them to withdraw from the work of God. Again, we skip chapter 5 on Wednesday because I sense there's a real-time relevance in this story to our fellowship here today. We're going to look at this in three parts this morning. Part one, the source of the distress. The source of the distress. Three things fuel the internal distress, the source of the distress among the people. And we see these as the chapter opens up. The first one is there's a hard famine in the land. There was a hard famine in the land. Verse one tells us there was a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, "We our sons and our daughters are many, therefore let us get grain that we may eat and live. And there were others who said, "Well, hold on, let us get grain that we may eat and live. Hard famine has hit the land. The people are saying, we got to get food for our sons and our daughters, our wives, our families. These are people who are working on the wall, the first group of people. These are people who had little or no assets. All they wanted to do was keep food on the table. They're living paycheck to paycheck. Perhaps you can relate. And due to rising costs, they're struggling to even make ends meet. Then verse 3 tells us there were others who said, we're mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, our houses, that we might get grain because of the famine, that hard famine in the land. Now these are those who had assets, but they've completely mortgaged their assets. What they did own, they've had to mortgage just to stay afloat. They're also working on the wall, as probably the first group were. They're working on the wall, but this famine and the mortgage properties and their vineyards, they weren't even producing enough to pay off the debt that was increasing on their land. And so they're frustrated. And then we get to a third group of people in here, during this time of hard famine... There were those who said we'd borrowed money for the king's tax on our field and our vineyards. This group of people couldn't keep up with the higher taxes being collected by the PRS, the Persian Revenue Service. (laughs) Which brings us to the second source of this inner distress. Not only was there hard famine on the land, there is heavy taxation on the people. Hard famine and heavy taxation. These are part of the source of the distress. Remember, Israel is an oppressed nation. And the king of Persia has a tax, which is a tribute that simply goes to Persia. It is a personal pocket liner for the king. It does no good to the people of Israel. It never gets back to the people to provide services or improvements for the land or communities. And we could talk about how taxes rarely do that. I'll try to avoid being political this morning. But we're talking about a hard famine, a heavy taxation, and the people of Israel are in a deep recession. Does that not sound familiar? Some are looking at their debt saying, I don't know how we're going to pay this down. Others are saying, I just want to put dinner on the table. And still others are saying, I can't keep up with the taxes. And they gather together to Nehemiah, and there is an outcry, but there is a third and worst source of this distress. Verse 5. They say, our flesh is like the flesh of our brothers and our children like their children. Yet behold, we're forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters are forced into bondage already and we're helpless because our fields and vineyards belong to others. The outcry reaches Nehemiah and the people's families are falling apart. They're having to send sons and daughters into indentured servitude. I've already talked to my kids about this possibility. (laughs) No, I haven't. But even daughters here are being sold into forced marriages, gang. This is not a good time for the people of Israel. But did you catch the primary reason for their outcry? It wasn't the heavy famine or the heavy taxation. Gang, it was the heartless loan operation going on among the people. A heartless loan operation. The real problem is with their own Jewish brothers. Verse 1 says, The the outcry was against their Jewish brothers. Verse 5, They're complaining, Our flesh is like the flesh of our brothers. Our children like their children. We're one people. And yet we're sitting here in distress, and they're making money off of it. That was the problem. There's an unfamiliar term here, or maybe familiar to you. you. Verse 6 Then I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. I consulted with myself and contended with the nobles and the rulers and said to them, You are exacting usury, each from his brother. Therefore I held a great assembly against them. Usury. It means lending at an exorbitant rate. It means sticking it to the man. It means trying to get more out of the person. It's bleeding a turnip. Luring people into loans they can't possibly repay. A great example is the recent greed-driven subprime mortgage crisis in America. Luring people into loans they cannot repay. Getting people into a situation... I remember as a a young married guy, not fully understanding credit cards, and getting to the point where even making the monthly payment was difficult to do, and I realized in making the monthly payment, I would never pay off this card. It would never get paid down if all I did was... And that's the plan. That's the whole idea. It's income for the credit card company, and this is going on in Israel, but it's not from the king, it's not from Persia, it's not from the outlying nations, it's from their own people. The greatest problem, and I'll point this out, with the free market capitalism, even here in America, is it is greed-driven. Now, don't understand, of all the isms in the world, I prefer, personally, the free market I prefer free market capitalism over obese government programs. However, that being said, the problem with any system of government and every system of government is sin. Hey, we're a capitalist nation. Yeah, we're still sinners. Which means we are going to use each other. Which means we are going to cause our own problems. Which means greed is going to be that underlying thing. Do you remember the movie, perhaps you didn't see it back in the 80s, now I don't even know what it was rated, so if it was R, please don't go see it. <laughs> but back there in my pre-ministry days, I remember seeing the movie Wall Street and the primary character, uh, was Michael, Michael Douglas, saying, greed is good. Greed is good. And in the 80s, greed was good. It's a total flip of the way things should be. And, and we're in this country where, where things can be very easily driven by greed. So I understand People having a problem with that. But I also know as a follower of Jesus Christ, I am called to something greater than personal gain. As one of Jesus' people, I am called to a different kind of behavior, especially as it impacts people around me. This was hard-hearted on the per- people's part here. It was also, by the way, unlawful. It was completely unlawful. God in His foresight and and His grace had anticipated this very turn of events. In Leviticus 25.14, the Lord in the law made this statement, If you make a sale to your friend or buy from your friend's hand, you shall not wrong one another, God says. You shall not wrong one another, but you shall fear your God. Why? Because I am the Lord, your God. You come into a relationship with Me, you are in a different place, God says. And therefore, if I'm your Lord, you don't wrong each other. He goes on in verse 35 of Leviticus 25, saying, In the case of a countryman of yours who becomes poor, and his means with regard to you falters, then you are to sustain him, like a stranger or a sojourner, that he may live with you. Do not, listen to this, do not take usurious interest in him, or from him. But revere your God that your countrymen may live with you. You shall not give Him your silver at interest, nor your food for gain. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. He says in Deuteronomy 23.19, You shall not charge interest to your countrymen. Let's make it plain and clear. No interest on money, food, or anything that may be loaned at interest. The Lord here is projecting an attitude from His own heart. The Lord is saying to His people in the law, you will not charge interest on your countrymen for giving them anything. He might as well have said, did I charge you interest when I brought you out of Egypt? Could we apply that to ourselves today? Did I charge you interest when I saved your soul for all eternity? Did I make it hard on you? Did I say I'll save you? However, there are a few things you're going to need to do. Oh, see, that denies grace. The Lord says, look out for each other. Look after each other. Look to the knees of each other. Don't rip each other off. The thing that upsets Nehemiah so much is that here his, his own people were distressing his own people. It wasn't enough that they had distress from the outside. They had to do it on the inside. They're stirring up their own problems. They're causing their own strife and oppression from within. And by the way, that is exactly what upsets our comforter as well. Nehemiah, his name means comforter, so there are parallels, as we've talked about, to the Holy Spirit. Paul warns us not to grieve the Holy Spirit. We see Nehemiah here in Nehemiah chapter 5. He is grieved. This is the first time we see him actually grieved like this. More so, he's upset. When Sambalot comes along, but he's not grieved. He's not angry at his own people. He is grieved with his own people right now. Why is this? Well, because they're using each other. When Paul says, Don't grieve the Holy Spirit, what is it that grieves the Holy Spirit? Do you know? Let's look at this. Turn in your Bibles over to Ephesians chapter four. Ephesians chapter four. We often use Ephesians four thirty. As a reminder, not to grieve the Holy Spirit. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit, Paul says, by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Ephesians 4.30 Throughout my life, I've heard that verse often. I thought, yeah, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Don't want to do that, man. Don't want to do anything that's going to upset the Holy Spirit. Have you ever stopped long enough to say, well, what is it? And What is it that grieves the Holy Spirit? It would be a good idea to know what that is so that we don't do it and thus grieve the Holy Spirit. Look at verse thirty-one. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. That that grieves the Holy Spirit. That is all internal strife, gang. All the stuff that Paul describes there is stuff that happens within a fellowship, within the church, within the body of Christ. Bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander—it's all family stuff. And it grieves the Holy Spirit. He goes on and says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Just as God led the people out out of Egypt and said, I'm the Lord your God, therefore you will not charge interest to each other, you will not take advantage of each other, you will not rip each other off. So now Paul says, we grieve the Holy Spirit when we do that. We need to learn what it means to forgive as God in Christ has forgiven you. How has God forgiven you? There's a word that describes the forgiveness of God in your life and mind, complete. Absolute. No strings attached, no holds barred forgiveness. And this is how we are called. This is how we're called to forgive. Back in Nehemiah, he's grieved at the heartless greed going on among the people. And being the man of action that Nehemiah is, he addresses it immediately. Part two, the solution of the distress. Source of the distress was an internal greed, an internal usury. Part two, the source or the solution of the distress. Verse eight I I said to them, We according to our ability have redeemed our Jewish brothers who were sold to the nations. Now would you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us? And then they were silent and could not find a word to say. Again I said, the thing which you're doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? And likewise, I, my brothers and my servants, are lending them money and grain. Please, let's leave off this usury." Please give back to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive groves, their houses. Also, the hundredth part of the money, of the grain, the new wine, and the oil that you are exacting from them. The hundredth part gives us insight there. It's a 12% interest rate they're charging on their own brothers. 12%. And then they said, We will give it back and we'll require nothing from them. We will do exactly as you say. This is interesting to me. They don't defend themselves. They don't try to deflect the guilt. They don't even argue the point at all. These noblemen, these rulers in Israel who are ripping off their brothers, Nehemiah nails them to the wall, calls them on it, and there's no defensiveness, which is unusual, isn't it? If you were one of those who was charging interest on someone and you realized you were about to lose some extra income, and someone said, stop it! I mean, wouldn't your initial reaction, maybe not yours, I'll tell you what my initial reaction would be. Wait a minute, i got to adjust my budget. <laughs> Give me some time here besides they're the one that did they, they knew what they were doing when they took out the subprime mortgage. They had all full disclosure of information their problem but there's none of that here. What made them accept this word and respond so quickly? gang it was Nehemiah's integrity that silenced the wealthy lenders. They knew this man. They knew where he stood. They knew his lifestyle. Look at verse 8 again. It says, I said to them, we according to our ability have redeemed our Jewish brothers who were sold to the nations. Guess what Nehemiah was doing. We have insight. We didn't know before about this man. Not only was he back restoring and encouraging the people and rebuilding the wall, he's paying out of his own pocket to bring Jews back into Israel. He's buying them. Buying slaves out of the surrounding nations as much as he can and as much as he has opportunity. He finds out a son, a daughter, or a slave to to Edom or the Moabites or somewhere over here and he goes and he's paying money to get them back. And he says, I'm out here doing this and you're charging interest which is going to send them back into slavery and I'm going to have to repurchase them to get them back here again. You're working against the very thing we're, we're trying to redeem people. And you're driving them out in slavery to the world. Apparently, Nehemiah was in the rescue and redemption business. And so, when he calls these people on it, they knew the heart of the man who confronted them. He had given them no cause for suspicion or reproach or mistrust. He showed by his example that he truly did care for the people. This is what I love about Nehemiah. There's something about this, this kind that goes to our ability to testify of Jesus in the world and actually have our testimony heard. Please hear this. We so easily get into a mentality that says we behave like Christians when we're with Christians. But when we're in the world, man, we've got to deal with the world the way the world does. And Jesus says, no. That is not the way it is to be with you. Because if you behave like the world when you're in the world, your witness to Christ will be destroyed. You will not have any effect. Nehemiah, if he had been doing what all the other people were doing, wouldn't have had a leg to stand on. Couldn't have said a word. He couldn't have called them on it. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1, Working together with him, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Giving no cause for offense, verse 3, in anything, so that the ministry will not be discredited. Let me tell you, one of the primary ways a church's ministry is discredited when people find out there's backbiting and bitterness in the body. Someone visits a church and discovers, oh, those people are all at each other's throats. <laughs> I don't want any part of that. I get that at work. Why would I go to church for that? It discredits the ministry. Philippians chapter 2, verse 14, Paul says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Do you realize that if you're out with somebody and they're not a Christian, and you grumble about your church, you are denying them opportunity to see Jesus? Even if you have a problem with your church or your pastor, I know it's unthinkable, or one of the leaders. You take issue, perhaps with something I've said or done to you in your life. And let me tell you, if you do take issue with me, you need to come deal with me. But if you go out in the marketplace and start talking about grumbling and complaining about what's going on in your church, why do you think that person would ever want to have anything to do with Jesus Christ? You are discrediting the ministry of Jesus. And John writes in 1 John chapter 2, verse 10, The one who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. Now this is tough. Because it goes to the heart of who we are. To live as people above reproach with no cause for stumbling. Which means that we are aware whether we're with Christians or apart from the body, we are aware of Jesus Christ at all times and the witness that we have. So that we will not discredit what Jesus is trying to do in this world which is to save people. We want to align ourselves with what He is doing. And guess what? Dad... He's doing things at Ace Hardware, through you. I'm not picking on Bill for a bad thing that he's done, either. But in the marketplace, in the workplace, he is working through you and your attitude, your behavior. People are watching, they know. They know if you're in Christ. We have this Nehemiah, the people have been watching him. Probably some scrutinizing him because he came in and and began to govern the people and... And pull all these things together. There's some who have had to be sitting back going, I wonder if there's any cause for reproach in this man. Reminds me of what happened when Daniel was in Babylon and the king's men were trying to find something they could get on Daniel. you know what they found on him? That he prayed three times a day. We nailed him! We caught him praying! <laughs> that was Daniel's witness. If my behavior in the community contradicts my worship in this barn, my witness will be hard to accept. If we treat each other poorly in this fellowship, in this family, backstabbing, grumbling, dividing, we do damage to the building of the kingdom of God. To say nothing of this church. We do damage to the larger kingdom. If you have, again, a problem with somebody here, then deal with that person here. You don't take it out somewhere else. We give our enemies fuel for the fire when we do that. Look at verse 9. Again, I said, the thing which you are not doing, what you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? He said, it's bad enough. The, the, the nations already reproach us. You want to give them more? You want to give them more fuel for their fire? Make it worse for us? Nehemiah's direct solution to this divisive usury was simple. Knock it off. I, I liked it this morning when Les was praying. And he said, Stop it. (laughs) Praying against the work of the enemy in families and in marriages, stirring up strife and, and causing division. Stop it. Well, you know, we can say stop it to the enemy all day long. We need to say it to ourselves. Knock it off. If you have a problem with someone, stop having a problem. Well, they're still being a jerk. I don't care. I don't care if they're being a jerk. What are you doing? Where is your heart? Nehemiah says, knock it off. Then he gives them a wonderful little object lesson in verse 13. I also shook out the front of my garment. Now the front of the garment was often used in in the market to carry grain. They would come in and they could open this flap and they could fill it up with grain. Nehemiah opens the flap and shakes it. And he says, thus may God shake out every man from his house and from his possessions who does not fulfill this promise. Even thus may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen. And they praised the Lord. And the people did according to this promise. Again, amazing. Notice the people respond to this reprimand. They very heavy and serious charge by Nehemiah. They don't get angry and defensive. They say, Amen. Praise the Lord. Why? Because now they were free from the debt. I'm not talking about those who owed the interest. I'm talking about those who were owed the interest. Now they are free from the debt. We need to understand something. Those who carry these high interest loads had themselves been carrying a heavy weight. They knew what they were doing. When you hold something over the head of a brother or sister in Christ, you know what you're doing and it's heavy. It is hard to bear. Understand, please, that forgiveness is much about freedom for the person offering forgiveness as it is for the person receiving forgiveness. When you don't forgive, you are packing a heavy weight. When you do forgive, you're free from the debt yourself. We have been greatly forgiven, have we not? Therefore, we need to greatly forgive. Again, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Paul says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. And so when the people get freed up from this mess that they've gotten themselves into, and they can say, your debt is forgiven, their response, their heart leaps. Amen! (laughs) Praise the Lord! (sighs) We're free from this. We can be family again. Part 3. The Standard of Nehemiah. The Standard of Nehemiah. Moreover, from the day that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, for 12 years, neither I nor my kinsmen have eaten the governor's food allowance. Interesting. Interesting. But the former governors who were before me laid burdens on the people and took from them bread and wine besides forty shekels of silver. Even their servants domineered the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also applied myself to the work on this wall. We did not buy any land, and all my servants were gathered there, that is to the wall, for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. That is, people coming to dine with Nehemiah on a daily basis, and then he gives the the menu of sorts. Now that which was prepared for each day was one ox, six choice sheep, also birds were prepared for me, and once in ten days all sorts of wine were furnished in abundance. Yet for all this I did not demand the governor's food allowance." Because the servitude was heavy on this people. Remember me, Nehemiah says, Oh my God, remember me for good according to all that I have done for this people. Now, if you just read verse 19, you might kind of say, That's a little arrogant there, Nehemiah. <laughs> remember what I've done is so good for the people. I would have trouble saying that. It might be arrogant except for the last three words for this people. Because Nehemiah's heart was not for himself. It was for the people. It was about the people. You see, Nehemiah's underlying focus wasn't just the rebuilding of the wall. It was the rebuilding of the people of Israel. It was about restoring from the outside, whether it meant buying up slaves and bringing them home to freedom, or working on the wall to create that sense of security, or calling people on their unbiblical, ungodly behavior. Nehemiah wanted to see the people strengthened and rebuilt. It was for this people. And as I look over these, these last few verses here, I see here one of the most Christ-like examples in all of Scripture. Christ-like? Isn't this before Jesus came? Yeah. Christ-like. Because the Spirit of Christ is on this man. You realize, you understand, the Spirit of Christ was actively at work in the Hebrew Scriptures in Old Testament times. I mean, it was Peter who said that the, uh, the prophets who, who were prophesying of Messiah by the Spirit of Christ were longing to understand what they were prophesying. Nehemiah is the most Christ-like example of anyone to point, I believe, in the Hebrew Scriptures. He stands out. Compare him to Jesus. Nehemiah refused to add to the burden of the people. There was a governor's allowance he could have taken. A food allowance because he was governing in the land and, and Persia had this food allowance. It came from the tax of the people. Nehemiah wouldn't take it. It was lawful. It was legal. He wouldn't do it. He ate out of pocket. He provided out of pocket. He refused to add to the burden of the people. Jesus said the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Matthew 20, verse 28. Nehemiah, we see, applied himself to the work and his servants. To the work. I applied myself to the work on the wall, verse 16. We did not buy land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. So on a daily basis, Nehemiah and his servants were working on the wall. He didn't have them back home preparing his nightly spa. He had the servants with him, and all of them were to the work. Jesus said in Matthew 16 24, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. In other words, where my work is, your work is. What I have done, you do. If you are a servant of Jesus Christ, you behave and act like and work where Jesus worked. He says, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus could just as likely have said, I want you on the wall with me. I want you on the wall. I want you to bear the cross. Like Simon I want you there. By the way, I mentioned Simon of Cyrene earlier. It's interesting when you go to the end of the book of Romans and you're reading these greetings of Paul. Well, Mark mentions that Simon is father of a couple of boys, one of them named Rufus. In the book of Romans, Paul greets Rufus as a fellow worker in Jesus Christ. In fact, he calls Rufus the chosen one. The chosen ones, like Simon, was chosen to bear the cross of Jesus. Now his son Rufus... So Simon became a believer after carrying that cross. And his son Rufus is now a leader in the church in Rome. And a chosen one. Because the people of Jesus are called to the work of Jesus. Just as Nehemiah and his people, they all work together on the wall. Nehemiah freely invited the people to his table. 150 Jews on a daily basis were invited to come dine with the governor, Nehemiah. Uh, in addition to other officials and people from outside of the land, Jesus said in, Re- in Revelation 3:20, "Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come into him and will dine with him, and he with me." And I remind you that verse is to the church, not to the unsaved world. Oh, Jesus has a heart for those who are not saved, but Revelation 3:20 is talking to the church, and he says, "I'm knocking on the door of your church. I'd love to have supper together. Do you want to? Do you want to sup with me? You want to have dinner? I'm knocking." you going to open the door or are you too busy arguing in the house to hear the doorbell? Psalm 23, verse 5, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Nehemiah did this. Jesus does this. And the big picture here of the whole story is Nehemiah was furious when his people were being ripped off. What did Jesus do when he saw his people being ripped off? Remember how furious he became? It's the one time that we see Jesus furious when He turns over the tables in the temple. And why? Because His people were being ripped off. John chapter 2, verse 14. In one of two, by the way, there are two incidences. Did you know this? Jesus didn't just do this at one time. He did it twice. At the beginning of His ministry, and then again at the end of His ministry because the sin and the usury had crept back into the temple. And at the beginning of his ministry, in John chapter 2, verse 14, he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers sitting at their table. The money changers. You'd come in from outside of Jerusalem and they'd say, oh, your outside money is not holy money. So we need to change it out for you so that you can use the holy money to pay your temple taxes and to, to buy whatever you need to for sacrifice. And they would charge interest for it. Usury. And Jesus is... Livid, He sees this. He made a scourge of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and He poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to, to those who were selling the doves, He said, Take these things away. Stop making my Father's house a place of business. Because the Father's house is not about business. It's about relationship." And I love this verse. We're told in in John specifically, His disciples remembered it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Does zeal for His house consume you? Do you find yourself stirred? One of the things that breaks my heart the most is when I see a news article decrying problems within the church. I hate seeing that. I hate when the outside world looks at the church and goes, yeah, whatever, hypocrites. It breaks my heart. Does zeal for His house consume us? Do we take personal interest in the people of God the way Nehemiah did? The way Jesus does? I, I read this story last week and I thought, wow! Are you talking personally to us here, Lord, or what? Rick, are you trying to tell us there's a big problem going on here in the bridge and you're just leading up to uh, unveiling this whole thing for us? Thankfully, No. Not that I'm aware of. Maybe something you're aware of. I don't know. But let me explain to you why this is so pertinent. Why we skipped it Wednesday and I saved it for this morning. Why it's so important to us right now at, at this point in our season as a fellowship of believers. The single greatest reason that churches fail in their gospel mission is discord, it's division and distress from within. That's why the church doesn't get the job done. It is not attacks of the enemy from without. Those attacks are there, and they are very real. But that's not why we fail. We fail because we divide in our churches. We divide one among another. It often begins in leadership. We've talked about this recently in our, in our church leadership here. Sometimes it's power plays between groups of elders and groups of deacons or, or staff or pastors, and they, and they begin to try and, and, and position themselves for control and authority. It can also emerge as factions within the church as well. Small groups, which I am very much in favor of, are also a dangerous place for factious behavior to take place. Because eight or nine people are in a, in a house, away from the gathered fellowship, away from the leadership of a church, and they begin to talk. You know, I really didn't appreciate what uh, pastor said the other day. Did you hear that? Oh, I heard that too. Yeah, I got Well, you know what, they're just a bunch of guest men over there with Rick anyway, and I haven't heard this, but that's how it starts. And we in our own little enclaves start to think that we've got the answer. Let me tell you, there's one person here that has the answer, and it ain't Pastor Rick and it ain't you. It's Jesus Christ. And we all need him desperately. And as long as our eyes are on him, division has a hard time happening. But when we start to look at each other, I don't really like the vest Pastor Rick is wearing this morning.
1: I mean that is so last
0: year. Let me tell you, it is. I bought it last year, so Proverbs chapter six, verse sixteen tells us there are six things which the Lord hates, yes, seven which are an abomination to Him. And that is a way of Hebrew speaking that indicates the seventh thing in the list is the worst of them all. Okay, Here's the list. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and here's the big one, here's the worst, this is the thing God absolutely abhors It is beyond hate for the Lord one who spreads strife among brothers. He hates it. God who is love hates strife. That's why Paul says and it's a tough verse, but uh, Titus verse, uh, chapter 3 verse 10, reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and sinning being self-condemned. I'll tell you one thing. And I can say this unequivocally here in the British Christian Fellowship. The one thing that would cause me to disfellowship a person faster than anything else is division. If someone is developing factions and sowing discord in this body and I find out about it, guess what? Bye-bye. See you later. Uh, plenty of other places you can go, but don't be surprised if I call ahead and let them know you're coming. <laughs> Reject the factious man. There is no place in the body of Christ for that kind of behavior. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. Paul says, I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another, in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Listen to that. The unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Unity comes by the Holy Spirit of the living God. If the Spirit dwells within us, then He desires and calls us to unity. We must recognize this. And here's why, again, it's so important for us right now, so relevant to our body at at this point in in our existence. We must recognize as we seek to make the presence of Jesus more known outside of this barn, more realized among people, that opposition is bound to come. We know that. And looking at Nehemiah 4 and Nehemiah 6, we're recognizing Satan's going to ratchet up the attacks against this fellowship, against you, against me. He's going to go after us more viciously because he does not want to see us emerge from this corner property tucked away in North Whitby Island. He doesn't want to see that happen. So he's going to crank it up a few notches. Nehemiah 4 and Nehemiah 6 and Nehemiah 5. He's going to try and create division within. I'm telling you this ahead of time. Jesus says, you know, in this world you'll have tribulation, but take courage, I've overcome the world. He also said, I'm telling you ahead of time, so you know. So you know it's coming. The devil is devious if he can divide brother against brother, sister against sister, family against family, small group against small group. If he can undermine the unity of a fellowship of Christians, he has saved himself a lot of trouble and he can just sit back and watch the kingdom crumble and watch the people fall apart. Don't allow it. Don't allow it. Don't rip each other off. Rip each other off how? Don't charge interest on your relationships. Take interest in one another but don't charge interest well how do you charge interest I'm not owing money to anybody listen Paul says Romans 13.8 owe nothing to anyone except to love one another for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law don't charge interest on relations how do I do that when you hold something over a brother's head when you hold something against a sister you're charging interest it's usury and Paul says in Philippians 2.4, Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. The only interest we should be interested in is the interest of our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. We are not here to hold it over each other's heads. Amen? Let's pray. Father, by Your Holy Spirit, I am asking for a great grace to be given to us as a church fellowship. I'm asking, Father, that we would be people who don't expect more out of others than we're willing to pay into people's lives ourselves. I'm asking, Father, that You will teach us how to give of our time, our energy, our resources of all that we have and and to do it expecting no return for ourselves we already have our return Jesus we already have our reward and, and it's you we already have our great retirement stored up for us for all eternity and so in this time and in this place Jesus I pray would you protect this body against usury against using each other against division and discord. And Father, I pray for the grace that if there are any semblances of discord here, that you will give us the courage to go one to another and to seek forgiveness. Father, I pray if anyone has been holding something against a brother or sister, even if the brother or sister doesn't even know, that you will give courage for that person to go to brother or sister and say, I am so sorry. I'm so sorry I've been holding this one over your head forgive me Father I pray that you would turn our selfishness around and may we have the spirit of Jesus in us the same spirit who motivated Nehemiah to be such a godly man to care so much for the people and to reject such divisive behavior Father for so many of us it is a pleasure being a part of this fellowship there is a joy here and I pray as we enter a new season, a more visible season, that You'll protect us against ourselves <laughs> and that we would not be cause for our own distress. But we would stand together, Father, bringing glory to Your name back to back, fighting off the outer attacks of the enemy while encouraging love and unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace in this fellowship. And Father, I pray this in the precious name of Jesus, Your Son and our Savior. Amen.